Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We're speaking on the morning of Tuesday, March 14th, 2023, and we're discussing the future of the Republican Party in New York. My guest is Ed Cox, who was just elected to return to the position of chairman of the state Republican Party. It's a position he held from 2009 until 2019. And now in the intervening years before returning as party chair, he raised money for Donald Trump's 2020 reelection bid. He helped lead a legal effort to overturn congressional district maps in the redistricting process that helped lead to GOP gains in the House of Representatives in New York and contribute in a very big way to the narrow Republican House majority in Washington ending two years of all Democratic control of the presidency and both houses of Congress. In the 2022 election, Chair Cox was instrumental in raising funds for one of two super PACs that supported Lee Zeldin's Republican run for governor, which he somewhat narrowly lost to Governor Kathy Hochul in the closest gubernatorial race since Republicans last won back in 2002, George Pataki's third term win. Those two super PACs that ran independent expenditures behind Lee Zeldin's very uh, assertive gubernatorial campaign helped raise and spend about $17 million in some, no doubt, key to how close Zeldin was able to come to Hochul. Ed Cox is now back leading the New York State Republican Party into this next phase after this very successful, relatively speaking, to how it's been going for Republicans in recent years in New York, 2022 election with major gains in the House of Representatives here in New York, a very strong performance in the gubernatorial election from Zeldin, some wins in the state Senate, state assembly in Long Island and Southern Brooklyn and other places. Ed Cox has seen and been involved in a lot in Republican politics over the course of decades. And he now has a new challenge ahead that starts with protecting the gains of 2022 in the upcoming 2024 elections, but actually also includes working to win some New York City Council seats in this year's elections. Yes, a reminder, all 51 seats of the New York City Council are on the ballot this year in 2023 after redistricting and Republicans in New York City are hoping to protect some recent gains in the city council and build on those. Chairman Cox is also going to be preparing for those 2026 statewide races with Republicans hoping for their first statewide win since that Pataki victory in 2002. In his acceptance speech on Monday, Chair Cox talked about party building, and we'll get into some of those details in just a moment, as well as the importance of focusing on three key issue areas safe streets, good jobs, good schools. And we'll see what he means on those topics. And more, Ed Cox, again, the chair of the New York Republican Party, joins me in just one moment. Very briefly, if you've missed any of our recent shows here on Max Politics, find them wherever you get your podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website, of course. Recent guests have included several of the borough presidents of New York City, I've spoken recently with the president of the United Federation of Teachers, Michael Mulgrew, about their contract negotiations with the city and other issues. I spoke with Keith Wright, the chair of the Manhattan Democratic Party, and a variety of other guests and topics. We've been talking about why it costs New York 
so much more to build mass transit than other places in the world. That was a really interesting episode with a researcher from NYU. And I won't go further down the list, but again, find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts or the Gotham Gazette website and at GothamGazette.com. You can, of course, find our bread and butter, all of our reporting on New York City and state government and politics. Okay, Chairman Ed Cox, head of the New York Republican Party from 2009 to 2019, and now again here in 2023. Welcome. Thank you for being here. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine, Ben. By the way, that was a very good presentation of where we are in New York politics. You were right on on all the points. And uh, I appreciate your other podcast that you mentioned. All right. Thank you. Very, very exciting. Very interesting. Put it that way. Good. Appreciate it. And on the Republican side, I will point people. I've I've had some uh, some GOP guests, Joe Borelli, the New York City Council Minority Leader, uh, Rob Orth, the State Senate Minority Leader, uh, both recent guests on the show or somewhat recent guests on the show to discuss different political topics and themes, including some that will overlap with this discussion, but there's a lot to get to here. So, um, Chairman Ed Cox, what is the vision here for leading the Republican Party forward after what many people of course, see as a relatively successful 2022, a strong showing in the gubernatorial race, big, big wins in House of Representatives races, some other down ballot wins. Um, What's next for the state Republican Party big picture? How do you build on the successes of 2022 and go further? Well, if any of you were a little bit more optimistic than I would be about what has happened. Yes, we did very well with respect to the redistricting fight. It was a two and a half year, first of all, political fight and then a legal fight. And we got fair districts. And a lot of national money, of course, comes into congressional districts. And we had a little red wave here in New York. The big red wave that everyone expected on both sides of the aisle did not develop. And the reason for that, in my mind, is the economics. I think that drives politics. And uh, the there was, as you know, negative growth in the first two quarters of the last year. And that's a technical recession. But in the third quarter, the election quarter, it was 3.2% growth, thanks to a lot of the Biden money that came in and that really had an impact on the economy, uh, as opposed to the rising interest rates. (laughs) I I think that fiscal stimulus won out, if you will. Mm. And then there's the issue of inflation in the big red wave. And uh, that issue if you if you release a million barrels a day from the strategic petroleum reserve uh, that is going to have an impact on the margin on oil prices which impacts gasoline prices and people see at the top oh look at trump look at the pump look the prices are going down, inflation's going. So there's a certain amount of optimism in the economy. But here in New York, we're always behind the eight ball on the economy. So we didn't have the same uh, uh, things that were happening to, to jobs and things that happened in the economy. So it's less optimistic. And we did better in every county of New York 
uh, uh, as opposed to two years before. So we had a little red wave. Our congressional seats were well funded. Uh, we had good candidates. We had fair districts. Uh, we equalized with the $17 million that you uh, uh, mentioned uh, with the independent expenditure packs. And uh, in the last six weeks, I think we even outspent Hochul a little bit. At the end, a lot of her special interest money, Madison Square Garden, of course, you saw their TV ads all over the uh, New York City uh, 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 TV. Uh, and also upstate. So in the end, she pulled it out. But Lee Zeldin, of course, did very well in Long Island, did very well in Lower Hudson Valley. And uh, at the top of the ticket, that helped us carry those congressional seats. When you look at the uh, assembly seats, yes, we picked up uh, five assembly seats. Uh, we're now at 48 uh, within three of uh, Eliminating their super majority, Democrats have in the in the uh, uh, in the assembly, uh, but we only picked up a net one in the Senate, so we're one away from eliminating their super majority there. Now, there are reasons for that. Uh, shoe leather gets you a long way in an assembly district. They're small, and if you have a good candidate, really knocking on doors with uh, you may be behind in funding. But you can, and the funding that you need is not quite as much. So, but in the, in the Senate districts are larger, and you need uh, you need better uh, funding makes a lot of difference, just like it does with the funding was not there in the end. In the end, in all the close races, the Democrats in the Senate had the reserves that they needed to put on those close races and to win them. Uh, uh, we did not. Mm. So. We really didn't did not break their super majorities in both houses of the legislature, and they still have the governorship. They have all power in uh, in Albany. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So look at what perfect example of that is what happened, which with Justice LaSalle, a very prominent justice, the presiding justice of the second department. And uh, and it is the first time ever in the history of judicial appointments to the highest court in New York State that the governor's nominee was not approved by the state Senate. Uh, it's simply a matter of separation of powers, unless there is really some big defect or something uh, that you would. But the history is the Commission on Judicial Nomination that clears the seven nominees from which the governor must pick, on which I served for 19 years, they do a superb job. I mean, they go into all the background and the reputation. They get all the information. That's why it takes them four months to do it. Uh, and they have a large number of nominees. And from those, of potential nominees, from those, they really call out the very best that they can find. So that's why you've, and they found a very good one here. Presiding Justice of the Second Department is a big deal. You have to be very good to have that, that appointment. But the reason was completely political. And this is corruption of the worst sort of our political system. It is destroying the separation of powers. In essence, by rejecting Judge LaSalle at the... Uh, judiciary committee level after making 
special appointments just before that determination was made. So in essence, they fixed the Judiciary Committee that turned down LaSalle 10-9. They said, that's it. That's it. All done. Mm -hmm. What's that's a message coming from uh, Leader Generis in the Senate to Governor Hochul saying, we are going to pick the nominee, not you, because we can reject that at the judiciary level and we can always fix it. So you have to pick our, our selection. And that's all really about not what they're talking about, but they want to re-gerrymander everything for 2024. That's mm. what the basic motivation is there. And they've got a case coming up uh, to the to the highest court. And by the way, the De Fiori resignation right after that decision, that was forced by the Senate in the end. So they force out the chief judge and they are determined to put in their chief judge who respond to their issues and particularly the jury man, as well as the general far left progressive agenda. And they've made that clear. They, 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 yeah, I, I, I would actually enjoy a lot to pick a lot of this apart with you, but I want to talk more about your leadership of the state party. I do think that that Democrats in the state Senate and beyond were pretty clear about sort of the political philosophy and the judicial philosophy they were looking for. And, and they, uh, you know, they followed, uh, followed through on that. Um, but but, um, but for, the, a- for the future, I was making the point that they still have complete power in Albany. They have yeah. a veto-proof uh, legislature, both houses. The Democrats have super majorities. We got a little bit closer, but we were certainly not successful at the Senate level. That we intend to correct going forward. We're going to raise the funds. We're going to find the good candidates. We're going to be in there. We've got to break those super majorities in, in both uh-huh. of that. All right. Well, that that gets me to my next question for you, which is lay out sort of the top political goals. So so it sounds like at the top of the list right now is 2024 breaking the supermajorities that the Democrats have in the state Senate, especially, and then perhaps well, as well. Let me, assembly. Let me say, that starts in the local races that are going on now. Okay. And this is something that the, the uh, well-organized state party can do to focus on the local races, to make sure we get momentum out of those local races, uh, but also that we get good candidates out of those local races uh, for the uh, for the assembly and for the Senate. That's where the candidates come from. And how, do, how does the state party, you know, as, as I'm sure you're very well aware, Democrats on their side of the aisle are having a big battle over leadership of the state party with whether Jay Jacobs should stay or go and and the role of the state party. So on your side of the uh, political aisle here, how do you see the role of the state party in terms of some of these things you're mentioning? There's obviously fundraising, and, and that's clearly a strength of yours and one of the biggest you know reasons that uh, people were calling you back to this position. Um, there's fundraising, as you mentioned, there's candidate recruitment, uh, there's, there's party apparatus building and, and platform development. There's, there's a bunch of big pieces of this. What are you going to be focused on here? Well, as I think you, by what I was describing, the reasons why we didn't uh, do well in the, the, uh, comparative as we should have done with our little red wave, et cetera. I think the first thing is you need to raise money. Money is very important, particularly in those Senate races, but also in the assembly races. And uh, so and that is really a big responsibility of the state of the state party. Uh, Can you convince sorry sorry to jump in there, but can you convince donors 
that the state Senate in New York is in a, a, a sort of lost cause for Republicans? Are you are you able to make that case to, to donors who might say, well, look at how well you did in the congressional races. Let's let's focus on those. The state Senate seems like, you know, it's sort of a lost cause. Are you able you think you'll be able to make that case? That goes back to the basic theme that I'm that I talked about. Mm-hmm. And that's on the messaging side. What we're for is safe streets, good jobs, and good education. Now you say, oh, shouldn't everyone be free? Yeah. You know, my sense is that New York State is, yes, it's a blue state, but it's not West Side Manhattan blue. It is blue collar blue. People are concerned about their families and basically about the, what's going on around them that infects their immediate lives. And those are the things that do uh, safe streets, good jobs and good education. You look at the leadership of the Senate, the fact they have been negative on every one of those major issues, major really at home kitchen table issues uh, with respect to jobs. Leader generis, just to please Madam AOC, who's in the same district and to save his own political hide, killed 27,000 good jobs that Amazon was wanting to put into that district. And then you can go over the whole, uh, whole background of other things like that, where the things that have been done by the leadership in the state Senate have really been driven by the far left of the Democratic Party. They have been captured by them. The same thing uh, if you're talking about safe streets. Uh, Streets are not as safe as they should be. You talk to anyone, you walk around the street, you understand that. And that's because of the so-called bail reform that was done. It needs to be redone. That is a big, big issue. Crime was a huge issue in the last election. People care about that. And that's because of the actions of the state Senate. Then you go to education. Education, I, for 10 years at SUNY, was responsible after the law was passed for putting the law with respect to charter schools in effect. And I've been a part going back to 1985 of the school choice movement. And at the moment, that is moving very quickly in many other states with respect to education savings accounts, not just we're way behind with our good charter school system here. They, the leadership in the Senate is trying to suffocate our charter school system. They will not take the cap off. And they're here in New York City and there are long lines of families who want to get their 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 children into those charter schools. So you got a champion. You got a champion on that front. If you want me to about the negative approach of the Senate and the Democrats who run the Senate and the Assembly with respect to education. So on all those kitchen table issues, we have the high ground. You um, you got a champion on charter schools and Governor Hochul. Were you surprised about that, that she put that into her budget and she seems to be fighting uh, for a, an increase in the charter school cap? Well, you know, debates make a difference, don't they? Mm. She changed yeah. her position on that in the debate with Lee Zeldin. She saw that was important to her politically. Yeah, I know. Um, I think you're absolutely right on that. But then, then, then she didn't have to put it in her budget, though, she, and she did, so... Well, yeah, no, carried, she could have carried but, over. Yeah. Yeah. But you give her credit for following through with uh, what she thinks is the right policy. And by the way, 
Chris Jacobs uh, and others who, you know, was a very prominent Republican in Western New York, in Erie County, former congressman, former state senator. He was very involved in the school choice movement there. And the charter schools there are very effective. And coming from Western New York, I think she's very well aware of that. And it's the right thing to do. Besides politically, it's very good for her because of the major money that supports charter schools. I think she wanted that to support her. So it's a good political reason. It also happens to be the right thing. But the school choice movement has moved way beyond charter schools in other states. We are way behind in that. And they are just trying. Look, charter schools are supposed to have an impact with respect to the regular school system. And there are lots of things in the charter schools that could be adopted in the regular. Well, guess what? Chairman Liu of the Education Committee, the Democrat in charge of the Education Committee in the mm-hmm. state Senate, has put a tight leash on Mayor Adams saying, you only have mayoralty control for two years, so you better do what I say. If you don't do what I say, and that's dictated by the teachers unions a lot, then you don't get to have mayoralty control again. That's a pretty big threat. That's mm-hmm. a tight leash. That means that the kinds of things that the mayor would want to have done, the Chancellor Banks would want to have done, uh, that things that Chancellor Banks has said, you need to learn from charter school. He would, mm-hmm. It makes it harder for him to get those reforms of the regular system done. They're killing our education system here that is the most expensive in the country and one of the least effective ones. So you talk about these three issues. I, I hear you saying they are a, a lot of what so many just sort of regular New Yorkers, you know, quote unquote, regular New Yorkers, just people going about their lives care about. But it's also not, notable to me and and tell me if I'm miss, you know, reading this or thinking about it the wrong way. But it's also notable to me that some of the other big issues that have been, you know, on the table um, don't seem to be things that you think Republicans should focus on. For example, uh, abortion rights, immigration, gun control, a lot of the other issues, sometimes they're lumped into sort of the, you know, cultural issues or things like that. But but these are key issues that come up in elections. They come up all the time in New York. Clearly, some of the positions that Republicans have held on some of these issues have held them back. Uh, when you look at public polling across New York, especially among the very important group of of the blanks, the unaffiliated voters, the independent voters who outnumber Republicans in New York right now across the state, these issues you very often see a misalignment between the Republican candidates and what the public polling shows in New York. Now, that's broadly speaking. That doesn't always translate to a, a specific Senate district, assembly district, congressional district, obviously. But is it your contention moving forward with the Republican Party in New York that it's very important to sort of try not to be dragged into debates with Democrats on some of these, we'll call them cultural, social issues that Republicans don't seem to be as aligned with the electorate on as they do often on things like public safety and education? Let's take the issues one by one. The abortion issue. Uh, Governor Hochul played that very big in her ads. Very big. She thought that was a winning issue. What Lee Zeldin did was he looked in the camera and said, I will not, not, nor could I change the abortion laws of New York State. 
And that's a simple statement that people, oh, yeah, that's right. That's not what he's about. He's about saving New York. And that's about the fiscal issues. That's about these basic issues that I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. Safe streets, good schools and good jobs. That's what people care about. And people say, oh, you're right. By the way, our abortion laws, because Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of with respect to New York State, we have more liberal laws now than we had before. So, you know, if you but, take, they will say, yes, well, you know, we're, we're really concerned about, but then when it comes down to actually, if as uh, Lee Zeldin had the necessary funds, actually it was, he didn't have them, the independent expenditure the campaign did, they present, they, really broadcast what he said. We repeated that over and over. And that had, and so Kathy Hochul in the last couple of weeks had to change her approach to something else. Harry Wilson believes that if he were the nominee, he would have won. Uh, and in part because of things like his stance as being a pro-choice Republican who's conservative on economic issues, believes in school choice, wants to focus on public safety policies, uh, tougher law and order, so to speak, and, and so forth. But there's, there's, as you're obviously very well, well aware, there's a strain of thinking that to really get over that hump and actually win a statewide race in New York, which, as you note, is blue uh, overall, but has lots of purple and, and red in it, um, to get over that hump and win statewide, you look ahead to 2026, that you need a sort of more traditional moderate Republican to, to do that. Is that your thinking as you look ahead to the next statewide set of races in 2026? Uh, Lee Zeldin's approach was a little bit different mm -hmm. because he did not think the issue, for example, abortion, he thought he could handle that. He stuck with his position. I'm pro-life. Uh, and people, the issues that it turns out people cared about were his save New York, the fiscal issues, those basic issues that I was just talking about. Uh, and but he didn't win. If people, and and if he people, didn't win in Westchester. If people, and if people are to trust you on the issues they really care about, those kitchen table issues, they want to be sure that you really mean them. You're not going to cave to the special interests. You're going to fight for those. And. Uh, on this other issue, which once explained to them, they say, well, it's really extraneous, but there's this guy sticking to his guns on that. I disagree. But on these, that means he'll stick to his guns on these issues that I really care about and that mm -hmm. I'm going to vote for him on. So it, it was a different philosophy. And I think once the funds were there to support it, if he had had those, if Harry Wilson had not drained him of the $13 million in the primary, yeah. and he could have applied those in the general election, he might have won. That was my next question. Is is Was the primary bad for Zeldin sure. or good for him? It was bad. Sure. I mean, we need to have the money the to get our, our message across. Mm -hmm. uh, the independent... Uh, expenditure campaign that we did for him, I think, uh, helped him. But the way it's structured is your hard money goes a lot longer, particularly in the it's much more effective. You know, you know, if you're independent expenditure, you have to pay a regular rate with respect to your media. And it's mainly media. You're, yeah, we did some get out the vote and things like that. And in our in the independent expenditure fund we did. But 
you pay more for the media. Those $13 million were very valuable dollars, and he did not have those available to him. And that's, by the way, that's a lot of money to raise for a gubernatorial candidate, a Republican gubernatorial candidate, to have that amount. I think yeah. that uh, the person who came the closest was Rob Astorino in his 2014 campaign, and I think it was $3 million. So there were, he, he had the funds, but the, he was drained of them in the, in the primary funds. Interesting. Are you trying to get um, former Congressman Zeldin to run against Senator Gillibrand in the upcoming election in 2024? Come on, I've been chairman for a day. <laughs> well, that's been it's that's been talked about for weeks. Is that I mean, do you like that idea for him, or do you want to well, see him hopefully in twenty twenty six? I had an interesting discussion about this with Governor Hogan of Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, a very popular governor, but he felt, and there's a lot of pressure on him to run for senator. He felt that. People in Maryland, a very blue state, were willing to take him as governor because they were in a terrible economic shape. And he gave out a good message. And then he delivered. He delivered good executive, even though they disagreed with him on a lot of the social and other issues. He delivered really good government and became one of the most popular uh, uh, governors uh, in governor states in the United States. But that's his governor. You shift it to you shift it to the Senate. What a senator does is raise his hand and vote on an issue. And that's more values. So if you're thinking of running a campaign for senator, you have to think about how to how will people look at me uh, in in how I vote? What are the important issues and how they will see me as a senator? as opposed to a governor. You may think that's too subtle, but if you, uh, for voters generally, but I, if you take a look at the history of people shifting from governor to senator or senator to governor, you find it's hard for people to do. Yeah, executive versus legislative, you know, there's a sure. whole different set of sort of uh, uh, sure. tests that, that voters will- It's not just saying recognition, exactly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, all right, I've only got you for about five, 10 more minutes here. So let me let me try to get to a few other things with you and we can always have you back. But um, obviously hanging over so much of this is the 2024 uh, Republican primary for president. When you were when you were chair of the party, um, you, you were chair of the party through the 2016 primary won by Donald Trump, then saw in 2018 uh, one of the toughest election cycles for Republicans in New York which so much of was clearly a backlash to Trump's 2016 win of the presidency, uh, generally speaking, uh, Trump politics and uh, Republican control in Washington. Um, How do you see the 2024 presidential race impacting your efforts in New York to hold on to your congressional seats, to try to win some of those state legislative seats? As far as you know, I, I'm looking at this ahead saying 2022 was a really opportunistic year for Republicans in New York. You had the first midterm under a Democratic president, obviously, but then you also had the first uh, election in several cycles where Donald Trump was much more of a sort of side figure and you saw Democratic turnout plummet in New York. Uh, so how do you see 
Donald Trump's role, the 2024 presidential race and your efforts in New York sort of colliding here over these couple of years? Well, I had to handle that situation in 2016. And uh, my position really started in 2015 when I looked at April 19th and saw there was a five week period before that when there are only two small primaries. So if there are any candidates left in those five weeks, and it turned out there were three very good candidates representing different ideas and philosophies, Ted Cruz, uh, John Kasich, and, uh, and Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, I called uh, my counterpart, uh, Chairman Patterson of the Democratic Party. I said, look, they've, here we, this could be great for the our party and it's your party too. You could have a great primary and we can decide who our nominees would be. Because in essence, we're New Hampshire, the decisive factor, with, but with 94 delegates. And you have a lot of delegates too. So, and he said, yeah, that makes sense. And the way he, we had the Senate, he had the assembly. And so that was set the, for what was really a decisive primary on both sides. Uh, but I had to take the position in that to, to be absolutely neutral. I welcome all the candidates in, encourage them to campaign all across the state that they want to do because the delegates are spread out all across the state. That means they go to state party events in counties. That means dinners. That means fundraising. Uh, and plus the excitement of seeing all and being, gee, we're going to select our nominee and what we're doing here. And that kind of excitement really uh, was, I think, was a real party builder thing. And that's my job, to build a party. But to do that, I had to take a neutral position, just like the National Party takes a neutral position until we have a presumptive nominee. And we did not have a presumptive nominee until really the New York primary, Donald Trump won it hands down. Uh, and two weeks later, he went in Indiana and he was a presumptive. But really, the New York, the New York, uh, his victory in the New York primary decided it. Now, with a week before, I get a call from candidate Trump and he says, and we have a long relationship going back to when he was running for governor of New York, which is a very interesting, somewhat obscure now, but interesting part of his political career. Uh, and he called me and said he wanted my endorsement. I said, I can't do that. Uh, and if he had won and I endorsement, everyone would have said the fix was in. So it wouldn't have even been good for him in the end. No, neutrality is the most important thing to benefit the party here in New York State. And that's at, at my point. Now, if a county chair wants to do it, that's their business as they want to attract this kind of that who fits there, who fits there, uh, the 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 voters in that in that uh, county. Don't you look at this a little bit strategically, though, and say, if Donald Trump is our nominee in 2024, that will probably be big trouble for New York Republicans in congressional <laughs> races and state legislative races. I mean, we've sort of seen the evidence, no? Uh, well, you're making an assumption there that I, as the party chair of New York State, could really influence the decision to that extent. And the fact is, it really, I would let the Republicans in New York State, all across the state, make that decision rather than me making that decision 
for them. Uh, on this one, I do not need uh, to lead them. We will. Uh, there will be lots of conversations going on. I can be a part of those conversations. We can discuss the pluses and the minuses of candidates. But in the end, uh, if you have a really exciting primary with all the remaining candidates involved, uh, let let the Republican voters across this, uh, this state uh, make the decision. Well, it sure sure will be interesting if you have Ron DeSantis jump in, Mike Pence, and and others. I mean, you're talking about a very uh, high profile uh, primary as as oh, and there are, there are other others and others. Out. Oh yeah, Tim Scott. Sure, I, I'm not gonna. I won't go down the whole list. It could be Red very Young, crowded. Duncan of uh, of Virginia. I mean, this is really a remarkably uh, good field that we will be that we will be looking at. Last couple questions. When you hear Mike Pence, the former vice president, talk about Donald Trump uh, putting his life in danger, his family in danger on January 6, 2021, um, do you ever do you ever have a moment uh, sort of to say this should be a sort of clarifying moment for Republicans that you have the former vice president who otherwise is talking up the record of the Trump Pence administration, but saying this really clearly crossed the line and that it should be something that Republicans can all agree on. You know, I scratch my head watching the former vice president say these things and saying that seems like a sort of minority viewpoint among Republicans. And I'm not quite sure how how we got here. Uh, Does that does that give you any sort of uh, challenge navigating the sort of pro Trump wing of the Republican Party, obviously, and the sort of Republicans who want to move on? How, How do you navigate that? even if you're not trying to uh, outwardly influence this primary? Way back when in 16, after Donald Trump became the presumptive nominee, uh, I was asked to talk with him. It's actually the Thursday after that Tuesday about what the what things had to be done going forward. At one point uh, uh, in those conversations, uh, raised the point of it'd be very important, the selection of his nominee, uh, of his vice presidential candidate, the person who he put up as a Republican uh, uh, candidate. And that's people would judge him by that. And uh, you needed someone, he wanted someone who would be very helpful to Congress. And I emphasize someone who could, who could be president and also also had the appearance to be president to avoid the Dan Quayle issue. Dan Quayle was very good, but he just didn't strike people as being a, a, a president. So, and Donald Trump really looked very hard for the next several weeks to find that kind of a candidate. And he, and the person who fit the bill perfectly was Mike Pence. He had been in Congress. I got to know him very well when he was uh, running for governor through the Republican Governor Association, had a very good relationship, and he was just the perfect selection. Uh, so I think that Donald Trump picked very well. I think he served him very well. Uh, he was an excellent vice president. All right. Uh, indicative of the of the tricky waters you have to navigate here. Last question. I have a statement here uh, congratulating you from Peter Gunter, the chair of the New York State Young Republicans. Um, and he has an interesting part of this statement that I want to ask you about in our closing moments here. Uh, it says, 
With the spotlight shining on the significance of the youth vote in New York and around the country, it's clear that the time for equal representation within the party, the the New York State Party, is long overdue. Uh, They want more seats at the table. They want more voices to be heard. How are you going to reach out to the young Republicans and ensure that their voices are heard and you're simultaneously letting them be heard and also obviously building the future of the party and, and building your bench? Uh, that's an easy, uh, easy question for me to answer by reaching out. Uh, they are the shock troops. Uh, I mean, you know, young folks can really get into a campaign in a very special way with a lot of energy. And uh, we, we need to have the young, young Republicans totally involved in what we're doing. All right. So I'm sure Peter will be glad to hear that and, and, uh, and that you'll be reaching out. Anything we didn't get to here, you know, I didn't ask you about George Santos. You've been asked a bunch. You seem to want to not really take a full position on George Santos and what he should do. Do you want to closing? That's going to be up to uh, to the Republicans and the Speaker of the House. I think the people, the Republican members of Congress and the Speaker. Well, well, let me put it this way. Are you going to try to uh, find someone to run against him, assuming he's going to run for reelection? Do you want to try to defeat him in the Republican primary next year? That is going to be up to the chair, particularly of Nassau County. I think he has made his position very, very clear on that. Indeed, indeed. A lot of the local Long Island uh, Republican officials have have made themselves very clear that they are looking for George Santos to be uh, part of of history sooner than later uh, in terms of his political career, of course. All right, let's leave it there. Ed Cox, thank you for all the time. There's plenty more for us to discuss in the future, but Ed Cox is now returned to be the chairman of the New York State Republican Party. He served in that role from 2009 until 2019. He's back now here, 2023, and we'll see uh, how how long this reign lasts, but you take over from uh, Nick Langworthy, who was uh, elected to Congress and is now serving there, of course, as part of the enlarged Republican delegation from New York as a result in part of uh, your efforts on the redistricting lawsuit. Ed Cox, thank you for the time. Be well, and we'll talk more soon. 